0: Well, in the, uh, in the Wakefield household, <laughs> it has become a bit of a regular practice to sort of deconstruct commercials with our kids. Um, we kind of do that at an early age. Um, how's that, by the way, for a weird sermon intro? Um, we deconstruct commercials with our kids. Um, but that's really true. It's become kind of a regular practice early on with our kids to kind of deconstruct commercials, which means we are basically uh, beginning sort of ad hoc or impromptu philosophy classes with our <laughs> poor little kids at an early age. Uh, don't worry, we haven't yet started with our four-year-old. We're going to wait till she at least turns five to start, you know, doing this kind of thing um, with Emery. Hey, this is an example of an ad hominem fallacy, Emery. Do you understand? No, let's watch Max and Ruby. Um, so h- here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. We'll be sitting there um, in front of, you know, the, the TV or a, uh, an iPad or some sort of screen, uh, watching a, a commercial that's about shampoo, in, in theory. Um, and we'll turn to our little seven or eight year old, you know, a philosophy student, and we'll say, "Hey, what's this commercial about?" Uh, and and they'll say, "Shampoo," <laughs> and and I'll say, "Right, good job." Uh, so, why aren't they on this commercial showing us? Uh, very much about what this shampoo really is or or like a picture of it or why are they telling us about how this shampoo works to clean your hair you know I'll ask a sort of leading question like that and they'll say something like because they want to sell you on being beautiful or prey on my weakness and insecurities as a seven-year-old they're very advanced very advanced Uh, now you may think after hearing a, a weird scenario like that which true story. That happens all the time in our household. You may think, sure glad I'm not a Wakefield, um, which I grant um, comes with its own set of weirdness. Um, But but here's why we do this sort of impromptu philosophy uh, deconstruction of commercials thing with our kids from an early age. And you all know this. (laughs) Thousands of messages are being sent our way every single day. Thousands of messages are being sent our way every single day. Most studies estimate that the average modern American is seeing upwards of 3000 plus advertisements per day. That doesn't mean we aren't around more. Many estimate that we're up to 15 to 20,000 that we are around and that are trying to come at us each day, but that we actually see something on the order of 3000 ish advertisements per day, which if you do the math means that in some form or fashion, We are taking in three ads or so a minute during our waking hours, (laughs) which is crazy, which is crazy. This is a, a figure that has pretty much not changed since the 50s. Some of you think this is a new thing, but this has been going on uh, most of our lives. Most of our adult lives, we've been sent thousands of messages per day, and the human uh, sort of standard of what we actually see and take in and notice is about 3,000-ish. That figure has pretty much stayed the same since the 50s. How do we know in a world like that what messages are worth listening to and which are not worth listening to? This is an important question. We we must develop discernment. We must develop a nose for what is worthy of our time and attention and what is not worthy of our time and attention. It's like this. In the world of coffee, which is a world I happen to love, uh, in the world of coffee, uh, a guy named Ed Faubert is what you call a, a cupper. A cupper, C-U-P-P-E-R. Uh, he's a coffee taster, uh, and he is so good at this um, that his taste buds are certified by the state of New York. So, so Ed's sense of coffee is so good. His sense of of knowing what coffee is and where it's from and what's good and what's bad. It's so good that he can take one little sip of coffee. Just, you know, that's why he calls it a cupper because it comes it only comes in cups. So. He takes one sip of coffee and he can tell you not just that it's from Guatemala, which is amazing enough by itself, but he can tell you the state it comes from, what altitude it was grown at, and on what mountain in that particular region or altitude, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, Ed Faubert gets paid lots of money (laughs) just to sit around and go, and go, Guatemala, this is good stuff. It's at this altitude. This should probably be priced About here. Now, think about Ed for a second. He he wasn't born a coffee cupper, nobody's born that way. He took steps to develop this. Skill. He had to taste all sorts of coffees. He had to travel all over the world. He had to talk to all sorts of people and study the coffee industry, uh, learn the skills of discerning what makes for good coffee and what makes for bad coffee, which means it took work. It took time. He had to learn to discern. It's the same for us spiritually, friends. We need to learn to discern the difference between truth and error, not just in others out there, but in ourselves, in my preaching. In every context within which we find ourselves, we need to learn the spiritual discernment kind of taste buds like Ed Faubert with coffee or maybe my kids with commercials. So that's why John's writing in 1 John 4 to help us understand how to spot the difference between truth and error. And it matters because we are inundated. We are inundated with messages that are competing for our time, our attention, and our money. So jump in at verse 1. It says this, Beloved. Press pause. We're going to spend some time on verse 1. Beloved. Just this first word. He says, Beloved. Long story short, John calls them beloved here in 4 1 because he feels a sense of pastoral, a personal pastoral responsibility for them. He wants them to understand this assurance of the presence of God in them so that they live out a Christ-centered existence and and a Christ-centered confidence. He wants them to show that they are the real deal. And so he feels this sense of personal pastoral responsibility for them to understand this assurance of salvation and the presence of God in them so that they live out of this, so that they prove on the outside what's on the inside. And so he starts out with this word, beloved, because he's begging for them uh, to listen carefully To listen carefully. He wants wants to prevent this from happening uh, again because it had happened in the context of 1 John here. So he's saying, I want you to hear this. Heed my advice. Listen closely. So he starts out in four one. He says, Beloved. Then he says, Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. Now press pause here on that. We're going to spend some time here on this phrase. Do not believe every spirit. Now, the word used here by John for spirit in verse 1 is used in a very general sense uh, to refer to any force or idea or message that inspires human behavior. Sort of generic, general sense of the word spirit or like disposition might be a decent synonym for it. He's using the word spirit here in verse one at first, at least to refer to any force or idea or message that inspires human behavior. This is like when we speak of the spirit behind something or someone like, oh, she has a gentle spirit about her. Or, you know, when he preaches, he has this annoying spirit that I don't like, you know, (laughs) things like that. So. Even the Scriptures use the word spirit like this in this kind of generic way in quite a few places. When David talks in Psalm 51 about renewing a right spirit within me, and he also speaks of having a broken spirit, it's like that. Other places in the Bible refer to a faithful spirit, a haughty spirit, a uh, sort of perverted or a humble or a calm spirit. So that's the way that John's referring to it here in verse 1, at least at the beginning here, to refer to any force or idea or message that inspires, inspires human behavior. (laughs) But we don't yet know what's behind this spirit or this sort of disposition here. So he says, do not believe every spirit. Could be good, could be evil, it could be an angel, could be a demon, could be an instruction from your coach, could be a message from your teacher, uh, or maybe even your preacher. It could be a commercial that is supposedly about shampoo, like we talked about earlier. But really it's about getting you to fall in love with yourself and your hair looking good and making money off of your insecurities. It could be a cute single guy at the coffee shop who claims to follow Jesus and wants to get to know your name and have your number, just like this internet meme I came across this week. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Single ladies, here's the lesson. Here's the spiritual lesson, single ladies. You've got to figure out what's behind it. I mean, it, it's silly. It's an Internet meme, but it's true. You've got to figure out who's behind every cute spirit. I mean, that's not quite what Paul says there, but... Okay, like half of you are like, that's not at all funny. Strike it for the next service. Fine. Fine. So, back on task. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, he says, but test the spirits. In other words, judge them to see if they're valid, if they're true. Then he says, why? To see whether they are from God. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. To determine if they're legit, if they are the real deal. To see if they are real. He says, for many false prophets, going on there in verse 1, Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is like the antichrists uh, that we talked about um, a couple weeks ago. Um, Jesus had already warned that this would be the case after he left. He said, there will be many who come after me trying to fill the void with them. So John is directing us here, given that situation of an anti-Christian message, John is directing our attention so that, he will, uh, so that we will learn to judge for ourselves the legitimacy of the messages we are receiving. And he's emphasizing here the importance of distinguishing between good and evil, which is super, super important for us. Because listen, friends, fake news is not a recent innovation. Spiritual quackery is is all over the place. A spiritual clickbait has been around since false teachers in 1 John tried to deceive God's people. So you should test the messages that you are hearing. You should test the messengers from whom you hear them to determine if indeed they are from God, if they are biblical, or if they are from another source. You should test me. You should test what I'm saying. You should go home and see for yourself checking what I say against the Scriptures uh, because I do that. I check myself all the time. Acts 17 uh, has a cool little passage there where it talks about the Christians from Berea uh, because it commends them because they did this. They tested what they heard. It says they examined the Scriptures daily. It says the Bereans... examined examined the Scriptures daily to to test what they had heard. And then apparently they all moved to Kentucky. So maybe they weren't so wise after all. Can I get a witness, Tennesseans? (laughs) People have been falling for bad ideas ever since. So John says this, verse 1, Don't move to Kentucky. No, he says... Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, whether they are legitimate or not. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then verse 2 begins to tell us how to carry this out. By this, in other words, in this way, by this you know the Spirit of God. And here's the doctrinal test. Every spirit that confesses, every force or idea or message that communicates, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is the doctrinal test, any person or message that communicates that Jesus was both human and divine is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. If the message, if the messenger is not about the saving message of Jesus as Messiah in the flesh, as both fully human and fully divine, then it is not from God. And then he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, the one that does not confess. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come the flesh is from God. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus And that assumes what he's previously said, that word and there, assumes that he's previously said Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So he assumes that for those who do not confess it in verse three, every spirit that does not confess Jesus as come in the flesh is not from God. He says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming because Jesus already told us and now was in the world already. Now, why is it so important uh, for Jesus to be both uh, human and divine? Lots of reasons we could talk about, um, but this is a centrally important Christian doctrine. It matters to sum up a lot of things because if He is not both fully human and actually human and fully divine and actually divine, if He's not both of those at one of the same times, then we have no solution for sin. If Jesus was not both fully and actually human and divine, then God did not send us someone in our place to live perfectly for us in the flesh. Because if Jesus hadn't lived perfectly in the flesh, it doesn't count to justify us. The gospel and our salvation hinge on that central truth. Now, this isn't the only test that we could apply, uh, but according to John here, it is perhaps the most important, uh, not just in his context, but in ours, because everything else follows from that confession of faith. It's why when we have people who are baptized or become members, we have them stand in public among others for accountability to say you're a part of this family just like Peter did in Matthew 16:16 16, 16, where he said Jesus is the Christ meaning the Messiah meaning divine the son of the living god he came in the flesh Jesus the man is the Christ both human and divine this is important because it helps us understand when faith is real and when it is not because there's no shortage of messages, there's no shortage of fakes, there's no shortage of, of spiritual quackery out there. <laughs> this test about Jesus, being both human and divine, proves whether the spirit, a message or a messenger, is the real deal from God or not. And it also proves whether you and I are the real deal or not. Whether we are born of God or of the evil one. Those are the only two options presented to us by Jesus and in Scripture. It also helps prove if we are legit. Which is why he says this, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, meaning the false teachers, You've already overcome them, so don't worry about them. Here's why. For he who is in you, meaning Jesus, is greater than he who is in the world. You have overcome them because Jesus is in you, not because you have overcome them on your own. You have overcome them because Jesus is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, and Jesus has overcome sin and death which is why in John 16:33 Jesus says, I have said these things to you speaking to his disciples that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace with God. In the world you'll have trouble, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, he says, because I have overcome the world for you. So Jesus is saying because I've overcome, you have overcome. You being an overcomer doesn't depend on your worthiness. doesn't depend on your perfections. It depends on mine in the flesh for real. (laughs) So take heart, he says. Have confidence. Because of that truth, Jesus says, that I am your overcomer and you are also an overcomer. So he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them in me. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Then he says... They are from the world, born of error and sin and evil. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. They speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The messages and the messengers to which and to whom we give ourselves end up proving whose we are. Let me say that again. I think this is important. The messages to which and the messengers to whom we give ourselves will end up proving whose we really are. That's true of evil, it's true of good, it's true of the devil, and it's true of Jesus, it's true of the Holy Spirit and the Word and God the Father if your time and attention and energies are spent listening to a true message that message will form you that messenger will end up forming you and the opposite is also true which is why idolatry is the main thing in the whole bible everything on this side sorry you get to be the side of evil everything on this side of self and evil becomes idolatrous In a way that forms us. And that's the spirit of error he's referring to. Everything on this side of Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, all that is good. If our time and attention are paid with those messages and those messengers, they will end end up forming us, which means we are being formed into the image of that to which we give ourselves. So the message and the messengers to which or to whom we give ourselves will end up forming us, which is why he can say very confidently in these verses, they are from the world they speak from the world the world listens to them but we verse six are from god whoever knows god listens to us which kind of sounds funny to hear at first like hey if they listen to us we're you know of god and they must be of god too so you listen to me obviously you're right Now, the problem here is isn't that John isn't claiming to be the oracle of all knowledge, like everything I say is from God, and you should just listen to everything I say. He's still saying, don't forget to test. Don't forget to test, like he already said. He's just saying that those who have a taste for spiritual truth know it when they see it. They can apply this Jesus as human and divine test. On the contrary, he says, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, by this test of Jesus as human and divine. If the message and the messenger to which and to whom we give ourselves is Jesus, come in the flesh, then we have proven whose we are. So why is this important, this lesson of of, of spiritual discernment? During this series, we've been saying that that people are the proof of God's presence. It's written on our walls, upstairs and downstairs here. uh, We are the proof. Think about that for a second. That is a pretty radical claim uh, to say that people can end up being the proof of the presence of God. And today's message in this is a diagnostic tool, not just for everybody else, (laughs) Before ourselves. If the proof of God's presence is people who act like God because the Spirit of God is in them, then we'd better be able to identify that proof of God's presence in people. Like how do we know we're seeing the real deal and not spiritual fakery in us or in others? Well, it's just like Ed with coffee. You work at it. You develop spiritual discernment. You develop Ed Faubert with coffee and my kids with commercials kind of discernment over time. It's not magic that suddenly happens. It's work to learn to see with spiritual eyes in this way that John says it takes practice to see all of life to see all of life through the filter of Jesus Christ who lived perfectly in the flesh to redeem our sinful flesh. It takes work to see all of life through the lens and the filter of Jesus as the Christ who lived perfectly in the flesh to redeem our sinful flesh. It means shifting your thinking in a whole host of ways. It means Shifting your thinking to understand that your schooling and your vocation and your life's calling are not primarily about providing material comforts and safety for you and your children, though that happens. They are primarily about you using your gifts and your skills to communicate this powerful truth that is the most important thing your life could communicate which is that God has come to save the world. When we approach our jobs primarily because of how they provide for us materially, instead of how we get the opportunity through our skills to communicate Jesus Christ come in the flesh, then we have proven whose we really are, haven't we? It means shifting our thinking about marriage and parenting to understand that these are relational contexts from which we have the opportunity to communicate a world-altering truth that Jesus Christ, God, perfection has come in the flesh for real to have fellowship with us. My relationship with you can communicate that amazing truth. Just like your relationship with your kids, your spouses, and your family when we approach our relationships as if they are primarily opportunities for us to make us feel the way we want, as if they're about manipulating others to get us what we want, then we have proven whose we are, haven't we? We have become the idol that drives that relationship. It's rampant around us. And those who live as if relationships are a context about proving Jesus to others they prove whose they are. So how do you how do you develop this? How do, how do you learn to develop the skill of seeing your life and others' lives through the lens of Jesus Christ come to save us in the flesh? You engage in worship, meaning <laughs> you come to this context, having prayed through a preparation of your heart, kind of. Process That means when you come here, you're ready to hear the Spirit that legitimizes the presence of God in you and others. That you're prepared to hear from God and actually engage in worship. Maybe you take notes on what's being said so that you're ready for the next step of this, which is to serve in a team and connect in a life group. Meaning you submit to the idea that this process that we're in here in the nine habits of helping people find and follow Jesus is something where your gifts and your skills are not about you, but they are about pointing people to Jesus. Something where connecting the life group, for example, you humble yourself to the process of reading the scriptures, not just Jesus and me, but Jesus and we. In context of community, praying with others, spending quality relational time with others in a context that will hold you accountable for your growth. These kinds of things, I mean, I could go on and on and on about the habits that we want you to be a part of. These are soul-shaping habits that God can use to move us forward into becoming the proof of the presence of God. The proof of the presence of God in us that shows whose we really are. So friends, don't sit on the sidelines watching everybody else prove themselves. Prove it for yourself. Test yourself. Are you for real? Or is this playtime? Prove it. Have the courage to trust that this is about the glory of God and that He is making in us a context where people look at our lives and they go, that's not just fake. That's real. Let's pray, friends. Forgive us, Lord, for the selfish fear to which we give ourselves that proves that we have made of ourselves idols. Give us the courage, Lord, to step into the places of faith and trust that call us into a greater depth of relationship with you and others. Lord, make of this place. Make of us as a people. um, An environment where people come to know you and to find you and to follow you with their whole hearts. Uh, Lord, that's the greatest, greatest thing in the world we could be a part of. And we want to be a part of that for others because, Lord, You've done that for us. We prove You've done that for us. That we've been blessed when we bless others. So, Father, continue to make of us a people. For that mission and that vision of your work in our lives informs all that we are. Test us. Help us to ask these questions of ourselves. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.